Well, good morning. I would encourage each of you to open your Bibles to the book of John. The book of John, we'll be reading from there here in just a moment this morning. While you turn there, I'd just like to say that I'm just so uplifted and encouraged by being here. I, I appreciate Brother Frank and the, the prayer that he led our hearts and minds in as we approached God's throne, and, and I, uh, I, I hope that we were all uh, able to, to do so with a very humble heart, and I, I know it's just such a, a wonderful opportunity that we have to be able to do that. I'm appreciative for, of Jim, as always, when he, he leads our minds at the Lord's table and at, and at the, the collection and, and the, the thought that he puts into that each time. Uh, and I'm especially thankful for Charles and the, the songs that he have, uh, had picked out for us to sing this morning. Uh, just reminding us what an awesome God that we serve. How, how glorious it is to be able to sing the praises of the God whom we serve. It has just been already this morning an excellent, excellent morning and, and, and a very uplifting and encouraging morning. And I hope that I can continue in that, uh, in, that, in that vein of, of encouragement and, and of, of edifying. And, and as, before I, I get into my lesson this morning, I want to talk just very briefly about a topic that is, is very, uh, well, it's, it's very interesting to people today, because, because you really can see the, the, the uh, evidence of this topic just pretty much everywhere, especially when it comes to our, to our entertainment. So, we have a, a built-in desire, a, a built-in infatuation with seeing justice done, with seeing that those who have, have done wrong are, are brought to, uh, to, to justice and, and must pay for the wrongs that they have done. And, and we, we have not only this desire to make sure that happens, but we just have this real interest in how that happens. When we think of our, our court systems and our law enforcement and even our military, we, we, we are very oftentimes, it, it piques our interest to see how they function and how they work. And that's, that's seen very much so even in our entertainment um, when we think of the, the very su huge successes of, of shows that indicate that, 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 that go into um, speaking on, on how these things are done. Uh, I, I can think of, a, a, for, for a long time, I, I enjoyed to watch shows that are, would be maybe described as crime dramas or uh, shows that went and followed how, how the police did their work to, to find out not only who the bad guy was, but how we might go about catching the bad guy. Um, and and I, I'll tell you, I believe that this, this topic was really kind of on my mind because it's me and Holly's you know, custom is we, we usually watch uh, a little bit of TV before we go to bed. And, and recently we were watching a documentary that was following the, the death of this young girl who, who died in our parents' homes. And the question everyone has on their mind is, who did it? Who, who is responsible? Who is responsible? What, was it a, a stranger, as the, the parents said? Was it the parents themselves? Was it another family member? Everyone wants to know who killed this little girl. And while these, these types of shows, they, they, they do uh, prey upon our, our interest and sometimes even our nosiness. We want to kind of find out what's going on in somebody else's life. It did pick up uh, a, a little bit. It piqued my interest that, that we also really want to see those that did these wrongs brought to justice. We want to see right done. And in keeping with that mindset of those who had done such heinous acts brought to justice, I questioned in my mind, have we ever considered 
when we think of the, the idea of who done it, who, who was the, the one behind the, the, the murder, have we asked ourselves, who killed Jesus? Have we ever stopped and given some thought to that? There have been many movies throughout history that depict the death of Jesus. Most recently, there, <coughs> uh, there was a movie called The Gospel of John. But even several years back, there was a movie, The Passion of the Christ. And both of these movies claimed, received excuse me, heavy criticism heavy criticism because of their depiction over the involvement of the Jews in the crucifixion. Many have, have used the idea of the Jews' involvement in the crucifixion to, to breed these thoughts of anti-Semitism. That, that's a hate of those of, of Jewish ancestry. They use that as the basis for their thoughts, and oftentimes they seek to place all the blame on the Jews. And I kind of wanted to consider that this morning. Maybe if we were to look at it, as, as so many times um, happens, we, we look at murders and, 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 and deaths in today's world. If we were to look at it and really take this to, to trial, so, so to speak, who killed Jesus? What would we find? One thing that I, I want to point out before we, we get into the lesson is that we will find, if we dig into the scriptures, that the idea that is behind anti-Semitism is, is completely contrary to that of the scriptures. The idea of hating anyone, hating anyone, especially those who might be contrary to your beliefs, is, is, is absent in the scriptures. In fact, this, this attitude was, was there in the first century. And this attitude was there of to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, Jesus spoke the exact opposite of this. He, his teachings flew in the face, flew in the face of this. When he said, no, you are not to just love your neighbor and hate your enemy, you are also to love your enemy. And you are to bless those who curse you. And you are to do good to those who hate you. And you are to pray for those who persecute you. So one thing we are definitely going to see, if we go where to dig through scriptures, is that to, to hate any people because of their involvement with the death of Christ is just contrary to the Bible. <coughs> but another thing I think we will find that the Jews were not alone in bearing responsibility for the death of Jesus. So when we dig into this and we ask ourselves, who killed Jesus? Maybe one of the first things we should do is really get a look at all the characters in this, in this narrative. Step back and see, and when we do that, we will see that there is one, there is one set of characters that rises to the top in their, in their role in the death of Christ. And maybe that first question we would ask is, did the Romans do it? Their involvement in the death of Christ was, was certainly very real. If you look over in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, read with me verses 28 through 31. John 18 verses 28 through 31 says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the, eat the Passover. Now we are speaking of the Jews who have, who have captured Jesus and taken him here. And the Jews would not enter into the praetorium. And therefore Pilate had to go out to them. Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. <coughs> the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Interesting. The Jews in this day and age, 
then living under the rule of Roman law did not have the right, did not have the ability to put anyone to death. They had no power under Roman authority to do so. And so, in fact, it was not the Jews who put Jesus to death, but in fact, it was the Romans. If we read uh, John 19, read with me. This is a, a, a lengthy reading, but read with me, starting in verse 16, and, and, and to hear who it was that actually had a hands-on experience in the death of Christ. It says, So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. This is, again, <clears throat> now talking about Pilate. So he then handed them over to be crucified, and they took Jesus, therefore, and went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, and where they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Now these are Roman soldiers that, that he handed them Jesus over to, Roman soldiers who went and crucified him with these two other thieves. And Pilate also wrote in, in inscription, and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. And so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. And so they, again, we're talking about Roman soldiers, they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the, of, of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen this has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture saying that they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. When we read through this, we see very vividly that the Romans had a huge part in the death of Christ. It was Pilate who handed him over to the Roman soldiers. It was the Roman soldiers who led him through the streets. The Roman soldiers who crucified him. The Roman soldiers who, who took his garments and, and, and cast lots for his tunic. It was the Roman soldiers who offered up the 
the, the sour wine. There's a Roman soldier who pierced his side with a spear, and it wasn't even uh, for the Jews, it wasn't even for Joseph to be able to take his body down. He had to get permission from Pilate. And we, we see in all this that certainly the Roman soldiers had a vital part in carrying out the act of the crucifixion. And if we were maybe to prosecute this case, we might take this evidence and go and say, look here, look at this great body of evidence against these Roman soldiers. But maybe their defense would stand up and say, hold on a minute. Let's look back a little bit. Turn back to John 19 and let's look in verses 10 through 11. Let's see where Jesus placed the greater responsibility. In verse 10, Pilate asked this question. You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? But Jesus answered, you have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate thought, Pilate thought that he was, he was totally in control of this situation. Pilate thought that he had all the power to, to be able to decide whether or not Jesus was going to live or going to die. And Jesus says to Pilate, to, in point blank, you have no power. You have no authority except for that which has been given to you. So the responsibility lies somewhere else. Responsibility lies on those, uh, on, on him who, who delivered me to you. And so maybe very quickly we would go, aha, wait a minute, that brings us back right to the Jews. It's the Jews' fault. The Jews were the ones that killed Christ. But again, I would say, well, let's, let's not act so fast. Let's keep digging into the evidence. Because certainly, as, as Jesus said in John 19, 11, there is one, the, the ones who delivered Jesus to Pilate bear a greater responsibility, bear a greater blame, but do they bear total blame? Is it completely and totally their fault? We might look into the Scriptures and, say, and, and start to figure that, yeah, yeah, maybe it is a lot their fault. Maybe it is totally their fault. And we look at passages such as John 19, verse 12. 12 through 15 says, As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, Pilate wanted to release Christ, but the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And that was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And so they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Wow, does, does, does this not just cemented in our mind that the Jews are the one responsible? Do we need even more evidence that the Jews uh, bear, bear the responsibility for the death of Christ? We can turn over to Matthew 27 and look in verse 22 through 25 and read more of the, the lust that they had for the blood of Christ. Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. These people just had, had this... this fervent desire. They wanted this man killed. 
And even Paul, later on in 1 Thessalonians, <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, identified the Jews of Judea as the ones who murdered Christ our Lord. What evidence, more evidence do we need? Can we stop right there? Maybe the prosecution again would stand up and say, Aha! There it is. It's plain and white. It's black and white. It's simple. They are the ones that are responsible. But yet again, maybe defense would stand up and say, Why don't we turn to Acts chapter 2? In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, and read what Peter said on that day of Pentecost. In that first sermon he preached in Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. Peter was saying, this was the purpose of the Father. Peter was saying, this was predetermined by the Father. Peter was saying, the Father, God, premeditated this death of His only Son, of Christ. What am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that sort of information? Peter was saying, yes, the Jews were instrumental. And yes, the Romans were instrumental. But they were carrying out God's plan. And even Jesus himself testifies for this. In Matthew chapter 26, if we will flip back over, Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 42. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and praying, said, My father, this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Your will be done. Jesus understood. He understood that it was the will of the Father that he be put to death. And even in Luke chapter 23, when he was on the cross, he acknowledged that the Jews and the Romans did not fully realize their sin, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And so all of a sudden, all of a sudden we see that it was God. It was God who killed Jesus. What do I do with information like that? And again, I would ask us to not act quickly. Let's keep digging into the evidence. Because anytime we, we find someone who, who, has, who, who has committed something like this, we ask ourselves, what was the motive? What was the reason behind your actions? Still in Matthew chapter 26. In verses 26 through 28, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, and he gives us insight into God's motive. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. <clears throat> 
says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. In fact, if we were to flip back over to Isaiah chapter 53, we would see that Jesus' death was foretold there as a sacrificial death for our sins. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall, to fall on him. And verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, we, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. And therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jesus was killed because of our sins, because of what we had done. The Romans and the Jews, then the Jews were instruments of God. And yes, they bore responsibility for that death. But all who are guilty of sin, every single one of us who is guilty of sin, bears responsibility for Jesus' death. Romans 3, verse 23 tells us that's every single one of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yes, because of this, because of his sacrifice, forgiveness is now possible. Forgiveness is possible through the death of Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, we read that, that Peter was pointing out that, that it was God's predetermined plan to put Jesus to death. And when the people who had, had just committed this murder, the people who knew that they were guilty of the blood of Christ, they had the only reaction that anyone can possibly have when they come to the knowledge of, of being guilty of such, such, such precious blood. They said, what, what can we do? What can we possibly do? And Peter told them, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, he said to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Paul went on in Acts chapter 17 to talk to those at the Areopagus, saying there was a time in which God, God winked at these things, but that time is no more. God looks at each and every one of us now, and He demands repentance and to be saved. And when that, we speak of repentance, we don't mean that you just, they, they weren't saying you just stopped doing what was wrong. They had already, they had already killed Jesus. They can't kill Him again, can they? He said, not just to stop doing what was wrong, to repent, to turn completely around, to turn your hearts away from, from, from this world 
and give them over to Christ, to give yourself wholly to God. When we come to understand all of this, when we have the full body of evidence in front of us and we are the prosecutors and we are looking to say, who killed Jesus? The answer is staring right back at us in the mirror. It was you and it was me. That's who killed Jesus. We killed Jesus because the sins that we had committed. And because of those sins and because no sacrifice would have ever covered those sins, God sent His Son, His only Son, to die on the cross. And for those who accept God's gift of grace, there is still one more question to consider. And that is, will we be repeat offenders? Ask the question, could they, could they kill Jesus again? Physically, no. There, there's no way they could physically put His body to death again at that point. He had already been been taken back up into heaven at the point of, this, uh, of, of Peter talking to them. But in Hebrews, we read that spiritually, yes, absolutely, we can be repeat offenders. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6 says, And then having, falling away, having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. It is possible. It is possible to crucify him again. How? Verses 4 through 5 go into that a little more, saying, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age of the come and then have fallen away. It's talking of those who refuse to repent. Those who are going to live in unrepented sin. Does God know that we're going to make mistakes? Yes. Does God know that we are going to sin? Yes. Does God expect us to repent and to turn away from those sins? Yes. If we refuse to do that, if we refuse to repent and to turn towards Him, we crucify again. We crucify again His Son. We make it of no value. That precious blood that was shed. So maybe the question we shouldn't ask is, is it possible? Because certainly it is. The question we should ask is, are we crucifying Jesus again? If we were at one time saved and yet now live in unrepentant sin, then yes, we are. But the beautiful message that God gives to us is we don't have to live in unrepentant sin. <coughs> in 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, we read, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is possible for those who confess and repent to be cleansed. But it is only possible if we, if we strive to leave this rebellious attitude that stands in the face of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, it no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of a judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Will we go on willfully sinning? Will we refuse to repent? Because if that is the case, if that is the, the manner of which life we are living in, we stand guilty. And we re-crucify Christ. In conclusion, as we, we wrap all this up, we, we ask that question, who killed Jesus? And yes, we saw that there was involvement with the Jews and there was involvement with the Romans in the actual physical crucifixion. But God killed Jesus because of our sins. We bear responsibility for the death of Christ. And we have seen that perhaps a more pressing question is not who killed Jesus, but who is killing Jesus. We've seen it's those who refuse to accept God's grace. Those who refuse to accept God's grace by coming to Him in obedience, believing in His name, confessing that He is the Son of God and being buried with Him in baptism. They bear the guilt of their sins that cause the death of Jesus. But also those who have accepted God's grace but have turned away to unrepentant sin we bear the guilt of crucifying Him again. This morning, as we get ready to sing the song of invitation that Brother Charles has picked out, the words of this song, I gave my life for Thee. What an excellent song for us to sing as we consider the death of Christ. Let's also consider 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1 and 2 says, In working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. If God's grace has been given to us, but we don't accept it, we don't ever take it, we don't ever obediently follow Him, then we will receive that grace in vain. If we have followed that grace, but we have turned away, we have turned away from Him and turned our eyes and our heart back to the world. We have received that grace in vain. And the apostle here says, don't do that. Verse 2, for he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This morning, if you have not yet accepted God's gracious invitation to come to Him, to be to be to have the heavy burden of sin and the weight of the guilt of the death of His Son, a weight that we cannot bear on our own, to have that taken away, to be removed from you, now is the acceptable time. If you have accepted that, but you have fallen away, or you've fallen away, don't remain in your sin. Confess your sins and turn back to God. If there's any way we can help you this morning, I would remind you again, now is the acceptable time. Won't you please come forward as we stand and as we sing.